1 Corinthians chapter 13. Defining love in society is a challenge because there's so many definitions that are floating around. Could you imagine if you walk down the street and just ask random people, give me your definition of love. Now, you would likely hear some similarities, but you would also get a vast array of answers. They wouldn't all be consistent, that's for sure. Here's some examples from the Urban Dictionary. An Urban Dictionary is a dictionary that is edited by the public. They can just add their own definitions as they want. I think there were, when I looked this up, 36 entries on love. Here's what some of them put. Love is putting someone else's needs before your own. It's pretty good. Love is caring about a person, animal, or anything, no matter what. Love is stronger than anything on this planet. It's a great definition of love. Love is stronger than anything on this planet. I I don't know how that defines it, but here you go. Love doesn't care what you look like. Love doesn't try to control you. Love sets you free. There you go. So if you don't, if you're, never mind. (laughs) Love is a feeling, but true love isn't just a feeling. It stems from friendship and mutual love and respect. So now you use the word to define the word. Love comes from love. You can explain it, or I'm sorry, you can't explain it. All you know is that you will never be the same. It's a beautiful feeling. That's the definition of love. Merriam-Webster defines love as, quote, a strong feeling of affection toward another person as that arise from kinship or close friendship. Dictionary.com says it's a profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person. And then the psychology dictionary defines love this way. A complex yet basically unified emotion comprising tenderness, affection, and devotion to the well-being of another person or persons. Makes you feel like I really want to be in love after reading that. The various definitions of love have actually given uh, way to college courses. You can get college credit taking a course on love. At the University of New Mexico and the University of Utah, you can take a course on the psychology of love. Other universities like Harvard, Yale, Syracuse, and USC offer courses dealing with love, and there are many others. And you can spend the better part of your day just reading various definitions of love. And as you read through them, you're going to see some elements you agree with and others that you strongly disagree with. And that proves that there's a problem in completely defining what love is. We tend to already have a definition in mind. So when we hear something that doesn't fit our definition, we kind of bristle against that definition. The fact that people have different definitions of love is a genuine problem when it comes to marriage. Because the wife may define love one way and a husband define love another way. And the husband thinks he's loving his wife because he's loving the way he defines it. She thinks she's loving her husband because she's loving the way she defines it. Neither of them feel loved because they're not being loved the way that they define it. And it becomes a big problem. Defining love can be a challenge, and for that reason, Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13, 15, describing or defining statements for love. 
And this comes in the middle of a discussion, right? Smack in the middle of a discussion on spiritual gifts. Started in chapter 12, verse 1, ends at the end of chapter 14. And right in the middle, he talks about love. After explaining that there are various gifts and their usefulness, their necessity in the church, and how we were given those gifts and what God intends for us to do with those, Paul says in the end of chapter 13, now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then he, or or, sorry, that's the end of verse 13, we're into chapter 12, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a more excellent way, and that more excellent way is love. And after the chapter 13, he does say, hey, the greatest of these things is love. Greater than faith and greater than hope is love. So Paul's making the case that as important as spiritual gifts are, as vital as they are, as crucial as they are, the most important thing that you do is to love God and love one another. That's more important than anything else. That's more important than faith and hope is love. Now, if the truth is, if you're loving God and loving one another, you will exercise your gifts and you'll do all the other things that are mentioned in chapters 12 and 14. It's important that we use our gifts, but it's most important that we do that in love. Paul emphasizes the point by giving three hypothetical activities that if he does those minus love, they're meaningless. He says in verse 1 of chapter 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if I spoke every language known to man and heaven, if I could speak any language that there was, but I don't do it in love, it's just a bunch of noise. And then he says, if I had the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. He's saying, if I understand everything, if I'm omniscient, if I know everything and I have all the power in the world, if I understand everything that God understands, that's what he means by the mysteries there, if I understand everything that God has yet to reveal to mankind, if I have all the faith in the world that I could move a mountain, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And then he goes on to the third hyperbole, the third Uh, example, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned, but do now have love, it profits me nothing. doesn't matter how magnanimous I am. If I give everything that I've ever possessed, if I even give my own body to suffer, but I don't do it out of love, it's meaningless. Love is the most important thing here. So then he gives from that point on chapter three or, or 13 verses three through seven, He gives these 15 descriptive statements about love. And of them, seven tell us what love is or does, and eight tell us what love isn't or does not do. We looked at the first five last week. If you missed them, you can find them the link on our website. Briefly, love is, in verse 3, or verse 4 rather, love is patient and love is kind. Patient means long-suffering. Puts up with things for a long period of time. Has the power to retaliate, but never does. And love is kind. It performs meaningful acts of service for other people. Then, the first three of what love is not or does not do. Love is not jealous. 
Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It is, love is not jealous. It doesn't envy other people or doesn't envy or what others have or resent them for because you don't have what they have. Love does not brag. It doesn't try to make others envious of you. And love is not arrogant. It's not puffed up or self-focused. That brings us to verse 5. And the next defining statement, love does not act unbecoming, unbecomingly. That is, love doesn't act in an indecent manner. Yours might say rude or unseemly. It doesn't act in an undecent man, indecent manner. It doesn't cause other people to blush. Like the wealthy at the church of Corinth. When they would have their communion services, they called them love feasts. They had a full-on dinner, not just a little little bit of juice and a cracker. They had a full meal that they called love feasts that were part of their communion services. And apparently what was happening was the, the wealthy would jump in line first and they would grab a big plate full of food and then they would go sit down and eat. By the time they got to the end of the line where the poorer folks were, there was nothing left to eat. In fact, if you look back in chapter 11, verse 20, Paul addresses this issue. He says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God? And the shame, and shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. So you're, you're, you're acting like a nut. You're, you're acting in a rude, unbecoming manner. It would be like us having a potluck on celebration Sunday and we put all the food out and then we say, all right, we're going to line up according to net worth. And those who are worth the most get to go first. And you go because you're, uh, you won the lottery and you invested in Microsoft in the 70s. So you come in and you pile up two plates full of food and then you get a styrofoam container and fill it up to take it home. And when it comes to the end of the line, the poorest folks in the church, there's nothing left to eat. And if there's anything, it's just the dried macaroni and cheese around the casserole dish. And even fresh macaroni and cheese would be disgusting. So. The people at the front of the line don't care. As long as they get what they want, that's all they're after. To act unbecomingly also includes to act in a way that is shameful or an embarrassment. When the Persian king Xerxes was having a dinner party and all of his uh, kingly friends were invited. It, it lasted a few days and by after the third day they were all pretty uh, drunk and he called for his wife Vashti to put on some fancy clothes and come and parade herself in front of his friends so they could see how beautiful she was. And she refused to do that. Xerxes was had moved from being rude to being crude. It's a word that is used of Gomer, Hosea's wife, who abandoned him and the family to sell herself to prostitution. 
We're not to treat people as objects of our entertainment, but treat people as souls for whom God cares and to whom we're to care for. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define it like Jesus does. Brings us to the next one in verse 5. Does not seek its own. Your version may say insist on its own or not self-seeking or not selfish. Does not seek its own. Selfish is a good word here. Selfishness is a true epidemic in our world. There's been a selfish pandemic forever. It affects and infects every person that you know. Paul uses a present active indicative here, which means that he's referring to a person who's regularly acting selfish. All of us have days or moments of selfishness. Paul's referring to those who are regularly selfish. Selfishness is a problem in every relationship that has problems. In every relationship that has problems, it boils down to one or both people are being selfish. Selfishness is to money, or is to love as greed is to money. You're getting ready to take your SATs, remember that one. Selfishness is to love as greed is to money. Interestingly, some secular psychologists encourage selfishness. They just don't call it selfishness. They say things like this. You need to look out for number one. Another way to say that is you need to be selfish. Your first priority must be yourself. Ads will tell you, you need to make sure you get everything you deserve. Be careful that you don't really get asked for what you deserve. You might get it. I think it was Ricky Nelson who sang, you can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself. The Bible, on the other hand, condemns selfishness and commands selflessness. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. In other words, don't look out for number one. Look out for others. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached me or reproached you fell on me. And then Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The repeated calls in the scripture to avoid selfishness and put on selflessness tell us that it, that selfishness is a natural occurrence. We don't have to be taught to be selfish. And if you've raised children, you know that to be true. You don't have to teach your children to be selfish. It just comes naturally. It's part of the sin nature. The selfish person doesn't care for the needs or the feelings of others because they're not thinking about others. They're thinking about themselves. They hurt without hesitation. They hurt without thinking because their focus is on themselves and not how it affects anybody else. One commentator explained the extent of selfishness 
when he said this, quote, cure selfishness and you have just replanted the Garden of Eden, end quote. How extensive selfishness and how how the effect of selfishness has destroyed our world. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. Love is not selfish. The third phrase there in verse 5, love is not provoked. Is not provoked. Your version may say irritable, easily angered, or easily provoked. We might say it this way, love doesn't have a short fuse. Do do or say one thing somebody doesn't like, spam. You know, we're gonna some of you are gonna light off some fireworks today. You better hope they don't have short fuses. Because you want to light it and get away from it. We've all known those people. You light the fuse and it blows up instantly. And those who are easily provoked or easily angered make it very difficult for those around them. You hear statements like this, I feel like I'm always walking on eggshells. Or I never know what's going to set him off. Those types of feelings don't promote loving relationships. Many times, persons who's easily angered feels justified. They treated me badly. Well, that actually helps Paul make his point. And his point is, even if someone wrongs you, that does not become a, a, a reason to be irritated or agitated or angry. Because that is seeking its own. Love is not provoked. God is not minimizing here the fact that we are genuinely offended by people. He's saying that when you love someone, when you love people... You're not easily offended. You're not easily irritated. When we seek to be like Christ, and we love like He loves, we follow His example. When He was attacked, He didn't attack back. When He was ridiculed, He didn't respond. Love wants what's best for the other person, never wants what's worse. Love patiently endures and quickly forgives. Love never gives in to knee-jerk reactions. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, then we need to define love like Jesus does. The last phrase in verse 5 says, Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Yours might say not resentful or keeps no record of wrongs or thinks no evil. It's as if Paul can read the mind of the audience. He knows what they're going to be thinking to an extent when he makes these statements. As if Paul's saying, well, wait a minute, what if I'm really offended? It's a real hurt. It's not some uh, uh, phony thing. It's not some uh, casual thing. It's a deep offense. The offense is real. Paul is saying, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not is not in the record-keeping business. Love doesn't keep a ledger or a spreadsheet and list all the wrongs that somebody has done so they can keep going back to it and reading all those things. Love doesn't keep a diary. Dear diary, 
Randy Mays offended me today. I said hi, and he was talking to somebody else and didn't stop and say hi back. So you can go back and years, and go back years in your diary and say, oh, that's right, Randy offended me on that day. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't keep a scrapbook full of stories and mental snapshots that you can go back and look at to remind you of the people who offended you. Some people keep such a tight grip on the wrongs and legitimate wrongs that were done to them that they seemingly wear a t-shirt that says, ask me what wrongs I've suffered. So they can tell you all about how bad their life has been and how rotten people have treated them. Satan loves to remind us of the times that others failed us or disappointed us or frustrated us or treated us in some way that was... Less than what we wanted. But love shreds the records of the past. Any offense, real or imagined, shreds it. It's important again to note that God is not saying here that you did not experience any legitimate offense. He's simply saying that when you love, you don't keep a record of those things. So every time is like the first, and you quickly forgive. This is the love that Jesus displayed after Peter had denied and abandoned him on that night he was betrayed by Judas. Now, after the resurrection, you might remember, remember the story is that they're at the shore and Jesus is cooking some fish when the disciples see him and they come to the shore real quick, and and as they're sitting around eating lunch, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. And this conversation goes on, and three different times Jesus asked, do you love me? And three different times Peter says, you know I love you. And three different times Jesus says, feed my sheep. If you're not careful, you read that as, oh, this this is, you know, Peter getting spanked. He got three swats because he denied him three times. It's not that at all. These are all affirmations that God has forgiven, that Christ has forgiven Peter's offense. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. I still want you. I still value you. I still have a plan for you. He's not seeking some penance here. It's a reaffirmation of Peter. Peter would go on to write 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins which he experienced firsthand. Love chooses forgiveness over bitterness and grace over grief. I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't keep a record of the wrongs that I've done and and hold those sins against me. I'm so glad that when he forgave my sin, he shredded them as if they never existed. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, then we must define love like Jesus does. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Your version may say rejoice in wrongdoing or delight in evil or iniquity. Our world is much different than it was 50 years ago, 
Some of you are going to have to take my word for it. And it's better in many ways. And it's much worse in many ways. Perhaps one of the most significant ways in which the world is much worse than it was 50 years ago is the is the acceptance, the normalization, and the glamorization of that which God declares to be sin. Where our world is forcing people to accept as normal and healthy and right sin that God hates. And it is getting, it is so bad already in our world that if you don't accept it and glamorize it and normalize it, then you are the problem, not the sin. We are so inundated with sinful behavior and told that it is normal that our society, even amongst Christians, have begun to ignore the sin and treat it as if it's normal and right. But love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. No matter how many times somebody tells you fire is not hot, no matter how many celebrities sit on talk shows and affirm that fire is not hot, no matter how many government officials have news conferences that tell you fire is not hot, if you stick your hand in a flame, it will burn you. So the world can tell us until it's blue in the face and all the celebrities can line up and endorse sin, but it is still sin. Doesn't matter what society calls it. It matters what God calls it. And love does not rejoice in unrighteousness or sin. So we must be careful as Christians what we endorse. We need to be careful what we congratulate people on. We need to be careful what we approve of or what we like. Because I've seen many Christians endorsing things that God hates. And you don't and I don't get to decide what's right or wrong because it's what we feel. We need to Default to God's word. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness and God determines what is righteous and what is unrighteous. God condemned unbelievers for doing that very thing of endorsing sin. Listen to Romans chapter 1 verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Good job in doing something that leads to your death. Sin grieves the heart of God. How much more does it grieve Him when those who are His children endorse that which He hates? Listen to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Well, we see this lived out in our world on a daily basis. Evil is good. Good is evil. 
Let us never forget that the wages of sin is death. We should pray that others will see their sinfulness, see the wickedness of their ways, so that they will repent and confess their sin to God and be forgiven and be saved. Woe to us who endorse their sin and say it's okay. And let them go merrily along their way down a path that leads to destruction. Let us love them enough to show them Christ, not obscure Christ. We're going to love like Jesus loves and we must define love like Jesus does. Now moves into our third point, what love does. The last five statements. From the positive side, what love does. Second half of verse 6, love rejoices with the truth. Clearly that is the exact opposite of what he just said. Does not Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but love rejoices in the truth. Obviously I've inserted the word love there. It's in the context. It rejoices in the truth. Love doesn't just overlook or or doesn't overlook and pretend that unrighteousness doesn't exist. It points people to truth. It's not just enough to avoid unrighteousness. We need to steer people toward righteousness. This isn't just talking about true statements. This is talking about everything that God does and says. He is truth. Love rejoices when the truth is made known. People know the truth. When you tell people the truth of the gospel, God rejoices. Love rejoices when people hear the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him. We rejoice when God opens the eyes of the spiritually blind and they see and they exchange the lie of Satan for the truth of God. We rejoice in the truth. And we ought to be diligent to learn the truth and desire to know the truth. And the truth is what's found in God's Word. And everything in this world must be filtered through God's truth. Love delights in making the truth of God known. So others will see it. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. And then verse 7. Love bears all things. Your version may say always protects. The word that is used there for bears all things means to cover or to protect or to support. And when it says to cover, it doesn't mean to cover up like hiding the truth, spinning the truth so as to cause somebody to believe something other than what is true or pretending that something didn't happen. It's not covering it up. It has the idea of protection, of a shelter over it. It it means to put up with someone who is in trouble because of their sin. It bears with them. It's it's a cousin to long-suffering. That I bear with people. I bear with their sin. I come alongside the sinner and help him or her deal with their sin so they can be restored to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. 
It's the opposite of distancing yourself from somebody who has sinned. You know, they've sinned. I've got to stay away from them because it might rub off on me. No, love comes in and helps bear the load. But, but they're getting what they deserve because of sin. Yes, and grace and compassion comes in anyway. And helps them bear under the load. It's coming alongside perhaps to admonish, perhaps to rebuke, certainly to comfort, certainly to encourage, certainly to help. This is what love does. Love bears all things. All things is pretty encompassing. It doesn't say love bears most things. Or love bears many things. Love bears all things. But, but their sin is really bad. Yes. Yeah. Love bears all things. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. The next statement there in verse 7 is love hopes all things. I'm sorry, did I skip? Love believes all things. I thought I skipped one. Love believes all things. This is believing that the motives of the other person are pure. Anybody ever said this to you? I know why you did that. I know what you're thinking. Love doesn't do that. Love always assumes the best. Always. It doesn't treat people with suspicion. It assumes the best and never assumes the worst. It doesn't mean that we naively believe everything somebody says. If I were to stand up here and tell you that I'm African-American, I don't expect you to believe me. That would be naive. Even if I said I identify as African-American, that would be naive for you to believe that. So we don't just believe something because somebody says it, but we don't treat them with suspicion either. We don't stop practicing wisdom and discernment. We're going 50 down the road. It's okay if you step out. Go ahead. Yeah. Step out and get a fresh air. Trust me, it'll be fine. No, we don't, we don't check our brain at the door. That's not what he's saying when he talks about believing all things. We don't turn off our brain and believe every theological lie that comes down the road. But love is not suspicious. And love is not cynical. Love always gives the person, we're talking about relationships here, person to person, love always gives the person the benefit of the doubt. Love always assumes the best, never the worst, always assumes that people are innocent until proven guilty, not guilty until proven innocent. Love doesn't require a polygraph. Well, I don't trust you. Let me hook you up to this machine to know that I can love you. Listen, it is better to love and trust people and be hurt than to disobey God and not love people. It's better to trust God with your own heart and love people rather than be suspicious of them. It's better to do that than to fail to love them. Because the most important thing we can do in our service to God is to love Him and to love others. 
If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. Then the third phrase there in verse 7, love hopes all things. Love hopes all things. Love believes that the person's motives are pure, and when that becomes difficult to maintain, then love hopes their motives are pure. Sometimes believing is difficult, so then we hope. Love believes a brother and sister is growing in their sanctification, and when that's difficult to see, love hopes that they're growing in their sanctification. Love believes that this person is going to do what God wants them to do. They're going to do the right thing, and when that's hard to hold on to, then we hope that they're going to obey. We hope they're going to do the right thing. This is an optimistic hope that one who has failed will be restored. It's hope based on the fact that no one is beyond God's grace. It's hope based on the truth of Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. When it's hard to hope that somebody is going to be conformed, hard to believe that somebody is going to be conformed to the image of Christ, we hope. We hope. We want it to come now, but when it doesn't come now, we hope it'll come. Like the parent who's always hoping that the rebellious child will return. We always hope that our brother or sister will return to their walk with the Lord. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. Jesus hopes. And then the last descriptive phrase there in verse 7 Love endures all things. Love endures all things. Patiently endures. The word is used of soldiers who hold their post no matter what. They hold their post despite the opposition that vastly overwhelms them. They endure. Love endures ingratitude. Love endures ridicule. Love endures ill treatment. It endures the consequences of living with sinners in a sinful world. It endures without becoming bitter. It endures without complaining. It endures without discouragement. Love bears, puts up with all things. And when that becomes difficult, love believes all things. And that becomes difficult. Love hopes all things. And when that becomes difficult, love endures all things. John MacArthur summed it up well when he said this, quote, Love bears what otherwise is unbearable. It believes what otherwise is unbelievable. It hopes in what otherwise is hopeless. And it endures in anything less, I'm saying, and it endures when anything less than love would give up. After love bears, it believes. After it believes, it hopes. After it hopes, it endures. There is nothing after endures. 
for endurance is the unending climax, end quote. And despite your whatever relationship with whoever, not just talking about marital relationships, but any relationship, you are in one of those areas. Bearing, believing, hoping, or enduring. This is how Jesus loves. And if we're going to love like Jesus loves, then we must define love like Jesus does. This is how we are to love one another so that the world will know that we are his disciples. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. And we can only know love like this because Christ loved us first. And we can only love like this with a heart that's been surrendered to the will of God. Because otherwise, it's our will that's controlling it, and we'll never love like this. We can't do it in our own will. We can only do it through the Spirit of God. And if you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in you because you don't know Christ, then you can't love like this. You need Christ. You need to call out to Him and confess your sin and ask Him to save your soul and give you a new heart that's capable of loving. We've spent the last 27 weeks looking at various passages in the Bible about love. We could easily go another year and never run out of passages. And while the series on love ends today, the need to practice Christ-like love never ends. We need to love like Jesus loves so that the world knows that we belong to Him. So we can share the gospel effectively with a lost and dying world. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must define love like Jesus does. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you love us. And that your love for us is a perfect love. That, Father, it is not uh, a, a mediocre, wishy-washy love that comes and goes with the circumstances of life. Father, thank you that you never withdraw your love for us. No matter what we do, no matter what we don't do, Father, thank you for loving us still. And Father, may we define our love the way you define love. May you work in our hearts that we will love others the way Christ 
loves. Father, may you be glorified for others to see that we belong to you because of the way we love one another. Father, would you please slay pride that keeps us from loving one another. Father, keep us from the selfishness that is epidemic in our world. And Father, help us to focus on the importance of loving one another and the message that it gives to the person and to the world. And Father, let us do it out of obedience to You and because You love us first. And the love that we can share to others has been freely given to us and therefore we can freely give it to others. And trusting You with our hearts for Your glory and the good of this world. And Father, again, if there's anyone here that doesn't know You as Lord, would You please open up their eyes to receive your loving forgiveness and be transformed by your grace. We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.